And if you turn to the book of Ezra in your Bibles, that's on page 475 in the church Bibles. And we're going to be in Ezra chapter 3, following on from where we were last week. Uh, Just so uh, that you're aware, um, we're going to finish Ezra chapter 3 this evening, and then uh, Paula and I and the children are away uh, for five weeks in the States, uh, so there's going to be no Ezra over the next five weeks, uh, and then we'll carry on in chapter 4 when we come back uh, after that time. So Ezra chapter 3, we began last week, and we saw that in Ezra chapter 3 we come to a new part in the book. The first two chapters we have seen God's people return from exile in Babylon, and they go back to the promised land as God promised them that they would do so. So the first two chapters are the return, and the second part of the book, chapters 3 through to chapter 6, are about the rebuilding of the temple. The last part of the book, chapter 7 to 10, are about the restoration of the law in the land. So we're in this part of the book where the people of God are looking to rebuild the temple so that they can worship God. And last week we looked at retro-worship. That was worship of God like they should worship God according to his word. And in chapter 3, we read lots of times how uh, they did things according to the word, according to what Moses wrote. And tonight we'll see that they sung according to what David had written. And we saw last week that true worship is putting first things first. The first thing they did was look at the word of God and arrange their worship so that it followed God's word. They put the word of God first and they put the atonement as a priority. They knew that they could not worship God without their sin being forgiven, their sin being dealt with. And so they built the altar before anything else so that they could make sacrifices so that sin could be dealt with. That was chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And tonight, we're going to see three other points about true worship. Worship that is according to God's word. Worship that should be taking place not just in church, but in our homes and in our very lives. This is how we ought to worship God. We see God's people here picturing how we too, in our day, two and a half thousand years later, ought to worship God. So the first thing is, put first things first. Worship God according to his word. The first things first is the atonement, having our sin forgiven so we have eternal life and we have a a relationship with God. You can't worship God without relationship with God. So we need sins forgiven. So they've put those first things first in chapters 3 verses 1 to 6 and then we come to chapter 3 verses 7 to 13. So uh, let's read chapter 3 verses 7 to 13. So it starts with the word then, so it's after those first things were in place. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre 
so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites, twenty years and old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid foundation, the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with tr- and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of God. As we come to look at true worship here, we see that they not only put first things first, but we see that true worship is serving in God's house, True worship is praising the Lord, and true worship is joy and weeping. And all of these things are both individual in our own personal worship of God, as well as corporate, as a group worshipping God. Now this chapter describes God's people as a group. They are as one body working in the kingdom of God. But... You can apply each of these truths also to our own individual lives. All of us individually need to be serving God. All of us individually ought to praise God. And all of us individually, we will see, ought to have both joy and weeping in our Christian lives. In fact, a church will never worship as it ought to in public unless the members of that church are worshipping as they ought to in private. The public worship of God's people should only be the overflow of what is already going on in their private lives. Otherwise, it is just hypocrisy. So let's look at each of these things in turn. True worship, then, is serving in God's house. Verses 7 to 9 describe a group of God's people working together for the common cause of God's kingdom. And we see them working together in a number of ways. First of all, uh, we see through their giving. Look at verse 7. It says, They gave money to the masons and carpenters, and they gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre. Now, giving is an act of worship. In the morning services, before we have our offering, usually 
uh, in fact always, you hear something along these lines before the offering is taken. We will continue our worship as we take up the offering. You see, it's an act of worship to give. We don't say, we really want your money, or, <laughs> or something along those lines. We say, we worship in our giving. That's why we give. But notice what they gave for. It says, so that they would bring, or they gave food, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. So they paid their own masons and carpenters for their work, but they gave food so that they could get cedar logs all the way from Lebanon to Joppa, or to be bought from Lebanon to Joppa. Now, I call this chapter Retro Worship because of the constant linking back to the days before the exile. And here we see the same thing happening. Here is another link back. And it's a link back to the time when the temple was originally built by King Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 5 and verses 6 to 12, we read of how King Solomon also gave drink and oil also to the people of Sidon and Tyre, also so that they would bring logs from Lebanon to Joppa. They're doing exactly the same thing as Solomon did. Now, in part, it is true that that is because that's what Solomon did. But also, it is true that Lebanon was the producer of the finest timber around. It was the timber that was fit for the temple of God. And in Ezra, they wanted to follow what Solomon did in choosing the very best for the house of God. So they gave in order to do this. And they paid uh, the people of Sidon and Tyre in food, drink, and olive oil. And the people gave so that God's temple would be built. Giving is not just a duty for us to perform under duress. It is an act of worship that serves in building God's house so that we can continue to do what God's people have always done throughout history, which is worship God according to his word. So as we give money at church, it goes towards the, the running of the church and towards the mission of the church outside of our church so that the church here in Pelsall and whoever else that receives our uh, money can continue to worship God according to his word. That's why we're here as a church, isn't it? To worship God according to his word. And that is why God's people give. It's an act of, of worship. And without the giving, the temple would not have been built. And if God's people didn't give to God's work, then God's work would suffer as a result. There's a time gap of about six to seven months between verses seven and eight, presumably as they're waiting for the timber to come down from Lebanon to Joppa. They didn't have planes or cars. It would have come uh, via boat. But there was another reason why it says that they did, in verse 8, build in the second month of the second year. And again, looking back to the days of Solomon when he built the temple, Solomon began to build the temple in the second month of the second year. Always looking back, doing what was done before. But it was also good seasonally. It was dry, the harvest had been gathered and the festivals were over. It was a good time to build God's house. And notice too how they appointed Levites, 20 years and older, to supervise. Joshua and his sons and brothers, they supervised the building of the house of God. 
I want you to notice that at the t- with the time that they built, with the supervision of the Levites, how everything was organized. Everything was, was logically done. There was nothing haphazard or, or random about what they're doing here. They're looking back to the word of God. They're organizing themselves. They're being led and they are building God's house together. And you should see how very much like a church that, that, that this is. The church today should also be well-led. The church today should also be well thought through as we put programs together that we, that we do together. So be in prayer for the leaders of the church as they, they plan for the future. We need a church that thinks things through so that we can be most effective in how we reach the lost with the gospel. They did things here at the opportune time, as we should as well. So let's pray that we would, as a church, be wise about when we do things, that we also would see God's house here in Pelsall built up for his glory. But notice in verse 8 how everyone is involved. It says, all who had returned from captivity in Jerusalem began the work. Everyone was involved. The leaders and the people worked together in order to serve God. And again, that is exactly how we should be as a church. Working together, serving God as his people. When you think of worship, you may think of uh, just singing. But here we see very practical worship. Worship serving God. It reminds me of Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 where Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We worship God properly by offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. That means that we don't just worship with our words, but we worship with our minds. We worship with our bodies. And here we see them physically worshipping God through giving and through building up the temple. They got their hands dirty in serving, and so should we. And we see that, don't we, in our church, even this morning as we had a meal together as a church, the church worked together practically to serve God in serving one another with food. It's wonderful to see. That's how a church ought to be. That's what they did here. And two and a half thousand years later, that's what we're doing in the kitchen as we serve God there as well. Sometimes I've heard it said that um, people come to church each week and they, they've said to me, it's like I get like a, a spiritual injection, like I get built up. And sometimes it's a good illustration, but it depends what you're injecting yourself with. Because injections can contain all sorts of things. A tranquilizer can be an injection that makes you go to sleep. And sometimes we can come to church and feel like we need a a pick-me-up in order to to get what we want so that we can uh, feel good on a Sunday. But really, church should be more like an injection of vitamins that enable us to work, to build us up so we can serve God. We should come to church so we can hear from God and build, be built up in his word in order that we serve God. So worship is serving. It's not just about feeling good inside, getting that injection that gives me a, a warm and fuzzy feeling in, in, inside of me. It's more than that. Yes, we, we must have affection for God. We'll see that shortly. But serving God, should, uh, worshiping God is serving God. It's practical. Practical worship. And we see that here 
uh, with the people of God. And we should come to church on a Sunday with the intention of serving God. It should be intentional. How can I serve God? How can I minister to others? Not just, how can I receive? It should be outward as well as inward. So true worship is putting first things first. True worship is serving in God's house. And thirdly, true worship is praising the Lord. Look at verses 10 and 11. Worship doesn't just involve singing, but it does involve singing as well. Singing is a way that God's people have always expressed truth about him. Worship through song expresses our emotions and our affections towards the Lord. And in these verses, we see the people of God singing. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. As we look at these verses, I want you to notice when, how, what, and why they sang. When they sang, what they sang, why they sang, and how they sang. So first of all, when did they sing? Well, at the beginning of verse 10, it says, when the builders had laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord. They sang when they had something to sing about. They sang when there was foundations. And the New Testament teaches us that the foundation of our life and our worship as Christians is Jesus Christ. In the parable of the wise and the foolish builders, where does the wise man build his house? Upon the rock of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul writes to the Ephesians about the foundation of Christ being the the cornerstone of our faith. Our faith is built upon Jesus. We can sing to God from our lips, but for us to really sing, we need to have Jesus dwelling in our hearts to be the foundation of our life. He's the basis of everything that we, we sing. It reminds me of the psalm we read in our service, Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 to 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet upon a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Notice that... The, the, the David there is saying that God lifted him out of the mud and the mire and he set his feet upon the rock and then gave him a new song. He didn't sing in the mud. He didn't sing in the mire. He sang from the rock. He sang when he had a foundation and our foundation is Jesus. If you haven't got Jesus in your life, if he hasn't forgiven your sin, if you haven't had your life lifted from that mire of sin and placed upon the rock of Jesus Christ through forgiveness of sin, then, then really there is no new song for you to sing. Oh, you can sing. You can sing the songs, even be stirred by the music, but it's not really from a heart that worships God. It's not the same. 
They sang when they had foundations. Furthermore, they, they, they sang at the start of the building, but they knew that there was more to come as they built. So they sang at the beginning when there was foundations, but they knew that this was the foundations of the temple. There was still more to be built. And as we sing, we sing when we have foundations, but we keep singing. And our song gets, gets greater because we're being built into the image of Jesus. And when we're in heaven, that song will be perfect. And we'll sing perfectly forever, which would be great for me because my singing isn't all that great. But in heaven, I'll sing perfectly forever from my heart. A heart, as Charles Wesley said, from sin set free. So we sing when we have foundations and we keep singing as God builds us up into the image of Christ until we're in heaven and we're a completed temple. So it begins with foundations on Jesus. Without the foundation, there's no singing, but it continues on. But verse 10 goes on to tell us not just when they sang, but how they sang. Look at how they sang. It says they sang as prescribed by David, king of Israel. They sang according to the book. This meant that it was, it was good to have uh, the instruments. That they, they, they sang with instruments. It says here trumpets and cymbals. And David prescribed that himself. David, uh, in Psalms, for example, Psalm 150, references all sorts of musical instruments to enable us to worship God better. And here, though, in this particular verse, it refers to the order of worship that David set out in the temple himself. And we read about this in 1 Chronicles. I'll let this will appear on the screen. This was what David did as he established the worship of the temple. David appointed some of the Levites to minister before the Ark of the Lord to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was chief, and next to him in rank was Zechariah, then Jaziah, uh, Simeomoth, Jehel, Mathaliah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jael. They were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. So there we see that David established the worship at the tabernacle and, the, and, and in the temple. And even as far as back as the book of Numbers, we read how the priests almost always used trumpets on joyous occasions, and they do so again here. You see, they're not just singing um, any old song with any old instruments. They're looking back according to what David, the worship leader, the king of Israel, established and they're carrying on with that. Again, retro worship. Singing God's praise, led by musicians with instruments that they could play as they had always done. In thinking about how they sang, notice in verse 11, at the end, that all the people sang. Everybody sang. All the people gave a great shout of praise. It was hearty worship given by everybody. That word there in verse 11, shout, goes a bit further than singing. It was passionate singing. It wasn't just uh, mumbling. This was uh, hearty, passionate worship of God through song. And they sang, as we can see in verse 11, 
and we'll see uh, more clearly in a moment, God's word back to God in praise. They sang God's word back to God in praise. And they all sang. They were all passionate. They were all singing God's word. They were led by musicians. And that's exactly how it should be today. As we come to church and as we come tonight, we've been led by musicians in worship and we've been able to sing the praise of God just as they did in the book of Ezra. And providing the song is based on the word of God, we should, from our hearts, be able to sing with gusto. Even if the tune's not to our liking, or as in the case of some of us, our voices are terrible, as long as it's a passionate shout of praise, we should be able to sing from our hearts to God in worship. But notice that it was the word of God that they sang. Notice what they sang in verse 11. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. And those words, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever, can be found through lots of Psalms. Psalm 100, Psalm 106, 107, and especially Psalm 136. Those words go all through that Psalm. They sing God's word back to God in praise. And our singing can, can change with new songs, but it must always really be retro worship in that what we're singing should always be based upon Scripture. We should never sing a song that's not based on the Bible. Now, does this passage teach us that we should only, therefore, sing old songs? Is that what retro worship means? Well, actually, it depends on what you mean by old songs. If you mean old songs based on the eternal truths of Scripture, then absolutely yes, we should sing the oldest of songs, the song of Scripture. But throughout Christian history, new songs are written based on the old eternal truths. And providing they are biblical, we should welcome this and sing them from our hearts with passion. But there is something special about this particular song. This particular song was special. And if we dig a bit deeper, we can see why they sang this song. First of all, this song was sung when the original temple of Solomon had been built. It was going back, retro worship. They sang this song when Solomon built the temple. But in verse 10 it says that they also sang it, so at the end of verse 11, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they sang because of that foundation, which we've talked about earlier. But there was something special here because they had been in exile for about 70 years. They had been far away from God. And the promises of God had been fulfilled in chapter 1, that promise that they would return from exile. The promise of the temple being rebuilt was being fulfilled. They could truly say from their hearts, from experience of coming from exile, that the Lord is good. And his love toward Israel endures forever. They'd experienced it, you see? They'd be in exile and they'd come back. And they could say from their hearts, from experience, yes, he is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. Look, we've come all this way. We're now able to rebuild this temple. The Lord is good. But more than this, listen to these words from Jeremiah 33. Again, they'll appear on the screen. These were written at the time 
when Judah and the temple was being destroyed. This was a, a time of despair and destruction for Israel. And this is what God says to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and on the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the, of the land as they were before, says the Lord. Isn't that amazing? As Jerusalem was being destroyed, as that magnificent temple of Solomon was being ripped to pieces, brick by brick, God said, you will come back here and you will sing this song, the song that was sung when the temple was rebuilt. The Lord is good and his love toward Israel endures forever. Now at this time, when the temple was being destroyed, this was the last thing they might have felt like singing. This seemed impossible. How can we sing uh, about this when everything is being destroyed? But there was a promise that they would come back and they would sing God's praise. And here in Ezra chapter 3, we see the fulfillment of this promise in the streets of Jerusalem. As the foundation is being rebuilt of the temple, they sing, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. What God had promised decades before when all seemed lost, they were able to sing from experience in their hearts. Brothers and sisters, we can look back at scripture and we can see things maybe about heaven that that just seem so far off. And we can look at these wonderful truths And they can just seem so distant to us because of our current experience of of suffering or of hardship. But just like here, those promises will come true. And we will sing in heaven around the throne. We will experience that. But even now, we can look back in uh, in our Christian testimony. We can look back to how God has saved us. And surely we can sing this, can't we? When when we look back and we saw our life of sin, which is what exile pictures were, away from God, in sin, in that mire and that mud, far from God, in the worst place that we could be. And yet God reached down and he picks us out of that mud and out of that mire. And God, he sets us on a rock, not because we deserve to be set anywhere but left in that mud. He places us there. And he sends Jesus to the cross to to pay for our sin, to die for us on the cross. All of those things that we've done wrong, forgiven, because Jesus has paid for them on the cross. And he rises from the grave so that sin and death are defeated and we share in that victory with eternal life. We don't deserve that. We, we receive it by God's amazing grace. That is what God has given us right now. Forgiveness of sin. New life in Jesus. From our hearts we can sing, He is good and His love endures forever. Without Him our life is a desolate waste, heading for an eternity separated from God in hell. 
But praise God, he lifted us from there and has given us eternal life. And so we can sing, oh, he is good and his love endures forever. Even when we feel like the people of Israel, when the temple is being destroyed, we can still look back to God's word. We can look back to what God has done for us. And we can still say he is good. Regardless of our circumstances, he is good and his love endures forever. Oh, brothers and sisters, you can see, can't you, why God's people shouted in praise? They have so much to praise God for, and so do we. We have so much to sing, so much to sing about, for truly the Lord is good and his love toward Israel endures forever. Wonderful truth, isn't it? True worship is praising the Lord because he is worthy and we have so much to praise. So true worship is putting first things first. True worship is serving in God's house. True worship is singing God's praise. And finally, true worship is joy and sorrow. We have this scene in verses 10 and 11 of of this great singing, this great praising of God. But then in verse 12, there's another reaction to the same event, which comes as, as a surprise when we've read verses 10 and 11. It says in verse 12, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. And the sound was heard far away. Now we have seen that there is great reason to worship God. And there is. And in fact, the people that wept did also sing. It says before, all uh, the people sang. So they, they sang and they wept. There was both. But there were people here in their uh, 70s and 80s. And they knew the old temple of Solomon that had been destroyed. They had been there when it was destroyed. They had seen what that temple was like. And the temple of Solomon was magnificent. And they saw this temple and they saw that the stones were smaller. Even though it's just the foundations, they knew this isn't Solomon's temple. The group of people in the land were smaller. We saw when we looked at chapter 2 in the list that they didn't have the same number of, of, uh, of uh, singers. They didn't have the same number of priests. They, they couldn't get enough Levites. It wasn't the same. They knew that in this temple there was no Ark of the Covenant that had been lost. It wasn't the same. There was no visible presence of God's glory like there was in Solomon's temple. This temple wasn't the same. And they, they were singing... In, in verses 10 and 11, as if it was the old temple, but those that had seen it knew this is not the same. It was a, a poor comparison to what was before. So is this a case then of the older folk being just grumpy old men and complaining and saying, well, it's not like it was in my day. Well, perhaps you could read it that way, but... Most certainly it is a sin to have that kind of an attitude, but there's more going on here. It's different and, and deeper than just grumpy old men complaining. I think they were weeping because they knew what they had lost and they longed for more. 
They longed for God's house to be as great as it was before. But they knew that it wasn't the case. It's like being part of a church that was once thriving, but because of sin is now diminished. You wouldn't be joyful at the diminishment of the church. Rather, you would weep over the impact of sin upon it. And I think here that they've seen in a physical way the impact of their sin as a people in the diminishment of the temple. It's not what it was. They were like the sons of Korah in Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2, when they say, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. There's a longing for God, a crying out for God, for his presence. And they wept out of longing for God's house to be great again. And I don't think this is a bad thing. In fact, it isn't a bad thing at all. It's a good thing. Because a, a, a Christian life should be a paradox in this sense. We should have a joyful contentment with what God has given us. Because he is good. His love does endure forever. He's a wonderful and amazing God. So we should have that joyful contentment with where we are. But there should be also a sense of weeping and longing for more of, of, of what the Lord has for us. For, for I know that right now my, my Christian life is not the best that it's going to be in eternity because heaven is going to be far greater. So there should be a longing for heaven. A, a, you know, come Lord Jesus. We should have that longing, shouldn't we? There is joy and weeping as we worship God and both are needed. There should be great joy in God's house because of what he has done. Even if we don't see God moving as he has done in days gone by and even in our country, the death, resurrection and ascension and return of Jesus are no less true if we're in a time of revival or not. Those things are historical certainties. Our salvation has has not changed because God is, is not saving thousands of people in Pelsall. There is much to rejoice in as the people of God. So there should be great joy. But also weeping is needed, isn't it? Is there no uh, longing for the lost? Is there no longing for, for our hearts to be rid of the sin that ensnares us? There should be. Don't you weep when you realize how sinful that you've been against our gracious holy God? There should be weeping over sin. There should be weeping over the lost. If there's no weeping over those things, there's a problem in our lives. Both joy and weeping are needed. But both can be dangerous as well. If we take either one to extremes, if, we're, if there's only weeping in the church, then we can become defensive, even ignorant of, of what is wrong in our lives and in the church. We can end up... Uh, we can, we can end up just being complainers. If there's only weeping, we can't see the, the, the blessings of God anywhere. Perhaps we, can, uh, we think things were only ever good in the past and forget the failures of the past and have rose-tinted spectacles of what went on. And we can forget the blessings of God if there's only weeping. And, and sometimes people can be tempted to go to that extreme. But what if there's only joy? And if there's only joy, we can become perhaps triumphal, uh, triumphant in our own um, Christian lives or our own church and think that nothing's wrong when it is and all those kind of things. 
So we shouldn't take either to extreme, but we should have both joy and weeping. And that's what's going on here. There is joy and there's weeping, and they can't distinguish the sound. And in any church, there are those that at this present time are full of joy. And there are those that at this present time are full of weeping. And Paul tells us in Romans 12 to rejoice with those that rejoice and to weep with those that weep. Both are needed. Both happen. Both need to be shared in as a people of God, exactly as is going on here. Last summer, we looked at the book of uh, Haggai. And in Haggai, uh, Haggai notices the people that were weeping at the temple. Uh, This is what Haggai says in chapter 2, verses 3 to 4 and verse 9. He says, Who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. And then he goes on to say, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. There's a lot we could unpack there which we're not going to, but I will at some point put the Haggai sermons online because they link in to Ezra, so you can listen to them again if you wish. But what God is saying here is, yes, there is weeping because this temple's not what it once was, but God says, but it will be in glory, surpassing what's gone before. And the reason that is because Jesus went to this temple. This temple where the foundations are being laid, Jesus went there. And for us, there is weeping at times now because we long for the Lord and we long for people to come to faith in Jesus and we long to be rid of sin. But for us, we know that one day we will be in glory and the weeping will be gone. There will be no more tears and there will be only joy. So we can have hope even in our weeping So let us be a people of God who worship right. Let us put first things first by doing all according to his word. Let us be servants and not passengers in God's house. Let us be people who sing praise with passion from our hearts. And let us be people who are ever joyful, but always longing for more of Jesus. And right now, let us sing. Let us sing as God's people. First of all, uh, we're going to sing the song that the people here in Ezra are singing, which we'll sing, give thanks to the Lord, our God and King, his love endures forever. And then finally, we'll end with a song that is a call to our church to wake up and serve God because he reigns. So let's stand and sing in praise to our God.